Have you ever asked yourself, what is it that moves the heart of God? What is it that pleases Him? Well, you could give a lot of answers. Many of them would be true. Praise and worship pleases Him. The preaching of the Word pleases Him. But the one thing we do know that pleases Him is faith. The Scriptures say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You, you see, you can have choirs, but God doesn't need a choir. Because He's got the angels singing praises to Him every day. You can have preachers, but God doesn't need preachers because He is the Word made flesh. You can have buildings, but God is not contained in a building. You can have events, but God's not limited to an event. You can have a great church, but the size of a church does not impress God because He spoke the Word and millions of stars came into creation. If you read the Gospels, you will notice that it is not position or church politics or appearance or stature or money that impresses God. The one thing that you see that gets God's attention in Scripture is faith. When we talk about faith, we see two examples in the New Testament where Jesus was amazed. Now listen, when Jesus Christ, God in flesh, says He is amazed by something, blown away by it, you need to pay attention. Because it means that God in flesh stopped and made note of something or someone. And the something that He made note of was faith. The first example is the Roman centurion. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 9, Jesus was amazed and turned to the crowd and he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now think about what he's just said. Jesus has said, I've, not, I've looked at the Pharisees and I haven't seen this kind of faith. I've looked inside the synagogue and I haven't seen this kind of faith. But with this Roman centurion, I have seen a great faith, and I am amazed by this man's faith and his understanding of authority. The second example is a Canaanite woman who came to Jesus and asked for him to help her with her demon-possessed daughter. And in Matthew 15 and verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. You have great faith. Jesus was amazed. He was in, in awe, if you will, if I can be, be to that edge, of the faith of these two people. A Canaanite woman, not a Jew, not of the line of David, not a pure-blooded Jew, but a Canaanite woman who was of the line that was to be driven out of the land when Joshua took it over a Roman centurion, an oppressor of the people of Israel. These two amaze Jesus. Isn't it amazing to you, it should be, that Jesus could come to the people that said they worshipped God and they honored God and they brought their gifts to God, but he wasn't amazed or impressed by what he saw in the synagogues and in the temple. What amazed him was what he saw on the street 
in people that the church would have turned their nose up to and said they're not good enough to associate with us. It amazed him that they saw him for who he was when his own people didn't see him for who he was. Now, by the way, it's a lack of faith that also gets his attention. Mark chapter 6 and verse 5. Mark 6 and verse 5, he went to Nazareth, his hometown. They had watched him grow up. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I wonder today if God came and whispered into my ear, would he say to me today, I am amazed at your great faith. Or would he say, I am amazed that after all you've heard and all you've seen and all you've been a part of, that you lack faith. Would God come sit by you today in, in the seat by you and whisper into your ear, I want to just tell you today, I'm amazed at the great faith that you have in God. And because you have great faith, it, let it be granted to you what is your heart's desire. Or would God whisper into your ear, I'm amazed that as much as you've heard and as much as that Bible that you hold in your hand says to you that there is no great faith in you. That you've not seen what I can do in your behalf. That you've not understood what I can do in you and through you if you'll just let me do it. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said in verse nine, in verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 29, According to your faith will it be done to you. Now, folks, if that's true, if amazing uh, Jesus is through great faith, or he's amazed because of lack of faith, and if he says, according to your faith be it be done unto you, then much of what happens in our life is a result of how much faith we have in God. Do we have the ability to trust God with our lives, with our resources? with our time and with our talents and with our energies, with the breath that God has given us, are we trusting Him with this? Or are we holding back somehow thinking that we still can run our lives, captain our own ship, drive our own car, do our own thing, and somehow see the blessing of God on us? I think we know better. I think we know better. Eve didn't believe what God said. And Adam and Eve ate us out of house and home for one reason. They didn't have enough faith to believe that God was going to do everything he needed to do, that he would be all sufficient for them, and they didn't know and need to go do what they did. Abraham had a lapse of faith. He told his wife to lie. Got him in trouble. Abraham had a lapse of faith when he decided that God wasn't going to fulfill the promise in his lifetime. God had taken him out and said, I'm going to make your descendants as the stars. And Abraham said, I just don't know if God's going to do that. Seems like if he made that promise, he'd answer it today. And it had been years. And so he took a maidservant and he had a child called Ishmael. And the war in the Middle East is today, today, because of one thing. Abraham didn't believe God and trust God. And there's Isaac and Ishmael. Two different lines, always at war. Because Abraham, in a moment in his life, said, I'm going to take my life in my own hands. I'm going to do God's will 
my way. And you remember what Abraham prayed when God said, you're going to have a son? And he prayed, said, oh, that Ishmael might live. Lord, don't make me have to trust you. Don't make me have to believe you. Just accept second best as your will. Accept what I've done, not what you said you would do. Take mine and let it live. You see, when you look at Scripture, you realize that, that Israel lost the ability to live in the promised land for 40 years because they wouldn't take God at His word. God said, I have given you a great land. They said, but there are giants there. Do you, do you think God was surprised by that report? You, you think God turned around to, to, to Jesus and turned around to the angels and said, I didn't know there were, any, I didn't know there were giants there. Uh, what do you think we ought to do? Should we reconvene a meeting? Maybe check Robert's rules of order to see how we call a committee? What did he say? I've given you the land. They didn't believe God's promises, and so they died in the wilderness. They died not living up to the potential that they had for their lives. And a whole generation had to be buried because they believed the report of the ten and not the report of the two. Ladies and gentlemen, it is significant where faith dwells in our life and how much we lean on God and trust in God to show us. And so, first of all, faith is more than saying the right words. It's more than just ticking off this stuff that you've memorized or heard in church. Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And by the way, if we're not pleasing God, then nothing else matters, does it? It doesn't matter if we build great buildings. It doesn't matter if we build great sports complex. It doesn't matter if we have a, the largest church in the world. It won't matter if we're not pleasing God. And pleasing God is by a church and the individuals within that church operating in the realm of faith. Now understand something. You're not putting faith in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Who are you trying to please? God. So where does faith come from? Even the ability to have faith comes from God. And so you and I need to understand that without faith, we can't do anything that pleases God. The tense indicates that apart from faith, it is not even slightly possible to please God. We live in such a rational, reasoning world. In Eastern culture, it's a little different. In the Western culture, we are more logical and calculating in what we do and how we do it. We operate by black and white and bottom line. We operate by profit margins. We operate by contracts. We, we are so analytical in the way we do things that it's hard for us to talk about, think about, and act by faith. Because faith sometimes does not make sense. It's beyond our reasoning ability. We have to get out there and trust God for something that if God doesn't come through, we fail. And that's uncomfortable for us because we're afraid that God will look bad if we trust Him too much and He doesn't come through. He says to trust Him. He tells us to trust Him. God has never been shaken by a person's ability to trust You've never stretched God to a limit that He can't go to. You and I need to understand that four times in Scripture, in Genesis and in Habakkuk and in Romans, it says the just, the righteous, 
shall live by faith. Faith is an operating principle for the Christian life. You cannot live it, you can't be saved apart from faith, and you can't live apart from faith. He doesn't say the just shall be saved by faith, although the Scripture says it is by faith that we are saved. But he says the just live by faith. Once you've been justified, made right with God, you and I are to live by faith on a daily basis. Now let me ask you a question. How many times this week did you operate by faith? How many times did you just have to trust God with something this week and didn't try to fix it and take it into your own hands and manage it yourself? How often did you go before God and say, God, I'm going to have to trust you with this because I don't know how all of this is going to work out. So I'm going to believe you for it. You see, we evaluate our lives by a barometer of faith, not by the barometer of how smart we are or how quick we are or how soon we bounce back. We do it in the realm of faith. Now, Ron Dunn in his book, Don't Just Sit There, Have Faith, which, by the way, you ought to own if you don't own it, and not just own it, you ought to read it. So says there are seven principles by which faith operates, and we're going to go through these quickly. Number one, Hebrews eleven six: by faith we please God. I want to be pleasing to God. How about you? I mean, I want to please God. I want to hear when I die, well done, good and faithful servant. So if I'm going to please God, I have to learn to live by faith. Secondly, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26, by faith some things are possible. Oh, does your Bible say all? Anybody, anybody's Bible say some? Anybody say 25%? How many Bibles say all? All things are possible. By faith, all things are possible. Huh. I wonder if God knew what he was saying when he said that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, he did. Number three, 1 John 5, 4, by faith we overcome the world. So, oh, you know, this world is just so bad and the pressures on our kids are so bad and, and, and society's so dark and, and walls are coming down and we're debating the Ten Commandments and, and we're debating, by faith we overcome the world. Listen, folks, the world does not dictate what we do. We don't knee-jerk react to what the world does. We live by faith. We don't back up to the world. The world needs to come up to where we are. And when they come to their senses, they'll find out we've been operating in the right realm all along. By faith, we overcome the world. 1 Peter 5, 9, by faith, we resist the devil. Oh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, the devil's so strong. You know, I, 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 you know I, I, one night I watched the omen and, and you know, I, I saw the exorcist back in the 70s and, and the devil's so strong. By faith you overcome the world. He says, little children, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil is no match for the Holy Spirit inside of you. The devil cannot cause you to do anything. God has given you power through the Holy Spirit to overcome. There is no temptation come you, your way, but it is common to man. And God has made a way of escape. God's given us a strength. God's given us ability. And by faith, we resist the devil. By the way, the scripture says, resist the devil, but, it's, but you better resist. 
You better not just throw up a whimper and say, please leave me alone. You better put on the full armor. You better know some scripture. And you better stand strong because he'll try to knock you off balance. All that armor, if you read Ephesians 6, is for you to stand firm. You put on all the armor just to stand. Not to go out and whip up on the world. It's just so you can stand against the fiery darts of the evil one. Then he says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 23, By faith we conquer the problems of life. You say to this mountain, move and it'll be moved. How do you move mountains? By faith. What's a mountain? It's an obstacle. Unless you're in Gatlinburg eating a pancake, and then it's something beautiful. But if <laughs> it's an obstacle. It's a barrier. You have to go around it, over it. You got to get around it. You got to move through it. By faith, we operate in the realm of faith. Jesus said, Don't be surprised by this. Operate in the realm of faith. 1 Peter 1 5, by faith we are made secure. By faith we are made secure. And then lastly, Matthew 21 and verse 22, by faith we receive all that God has promised to the believer. By faith we receive all that God has promised to the believer. Now, secondly, faith is the way I am to live, not just at church. Not just when I'm having a holy huddle discussion. You know, when you get with a bunch of other Christians and you start talking spiritual. Faith's the way I'm supposed to live at school. When I'm playing sports, when I'm doing I'm supposed to operate by the fact that I'm here by the grace of God. God's put me here for a purpose. Lord, I want to please you with what I'm doing with my life. Faith is the realm. I live by faith, Paul says, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. By faith, I identify myself with Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because some of us trust in other things. Some of us trust in mama and daddy's money. Ten trillion dollars will be spent by baby boomers in the last 10 years and the next 15 of the money of the greatest generation they will spend 10 trillion dollars the average inheritance for those of you that are thinking you're going to leave it to their kids and they're going to do what you did with it forget it the average inheritance whether a thousand dollars or a billion dollars is dispersed and spent in 18 months after the death of the parents Gone. Nothing to show for it. Gone. Some of you trusting it, boy, when, you know, when my folks, when I get a hold of that money, you think you're going to be any more faithful when you get it? I doubt it. Because if you're not faithful with what you have now, you're not going to be faithful if God gives you something else. You better be faithful with what you have now. And if your mom and dad were smart, they wouldn't leave it to you because you've squandered everything you've had up to this point. They'd give it to kingdom business because they'd know all you're going to do is spend it on bubble gum and, and tires and cars and stuff. You're going to waste it. I like that book, Die Broke. <laughs> you ever read that book, Die Broke? He says, don't leave your kids anything. Make them earn it like you did.
We're going to leave them something, but I want to tell you something. We're going to leave something for the kingdom, too. Some people trust in their abilities. Well, how far can your abilities take you? How much do you know? How much do you have? How much can you do? Whatever it is, whatever the extent of it is, it's limited. It's limited to you. Some people trust in their reasoning power. Some people trust in their bank accounts. There are a lot of people in the 20s that were trusting in their bank accounts, and when the Great Depression hit, there were a lot of millionaires who were committing suicide because they lost everything. Listen, folks, Great Depression or, no, or a great economy, it doesn't matter. If you lose your money, you still got your soul. And you still have to answer to a God. And so what we have here is the understanding that, that the only worthy object of our faith is the Son of God. Not in our resources, not in our money, not in our stuff, not, not in Grandma's prayers. I'm just trusting Grandma's prayers to get me through. You better thank God you've got Grandma's prayers, but you ought to be praying for yourself. I mean, I'm grateful for people that pray for me, but I need to pray for myself too. The power is not in my faith. The power is in the object of my faith. And the object of my faith has to be a sovereign God, not the subjective feelings I'm having at the moment. You see, God is sovereign. And I have to put my faith in a sovereign God. And the object of my faith is not subjective, it's sovereign. He says in Mark 11, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Hudson Taylor was translating Mark eleven twenty two, 22, and it said, he said it could be translated, when he was translating for the Chinese, it could be translated, hold the faithfulness of God. Hold the faithfulness of God. And so there's some suggestions here. Number one, that there's a sincere faith. Paul writing to Timothy said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not something that's worked up, not something that's play-acting, but it's sincere because it's built on truth. It's built on Scripture. It's not built on my feelings. It's not built on my emotions. It's not built on some appeal. It's built on the Word of God in my life and in my heart and the Holy Spirit bearing witness to that Word in me, and there's a sincere, godly, genuine, unadulterated faith in me that I will take God at His Word see, it's not enough to be sincere. You can be sincere and be wrong. It's a sincere faith, and sincere faith is New Testament faith. It's not something that's manipulated. It's not something that's worked up. Also, it's not something where I'm going to have faith, so God will give me something. Faith is faith if you do not see the reward in this life. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, Paul said, Strengthen and encourage you in the faith. He said in verse 5, I sent to find out about your faith. In verse 7, we were encouraged because of your faith. When Jesus prayed for Simon Peter, when he was about to go through the sifting, he said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. When God sent judgment on the earth with Noah, he said he was looking for faith on the earth. Let me ask you, if he came looking in your home today, would he find faith? If he came looking at your priority list today, would he find faith? 
If he came looking at your checkbook today, would he find faith? Would he find in your life those characteristics that are pleasing to him and honoring to him and exalting to the name of his son, Jesus Christ? Not only a sincere faith, but a steadfast faith. Ask in faith, James says, James 1.6, without doubting. Now, there's two things that James says that we're to do when we're to ask in faith without doubting. These people were suffering. There were setbacks. There were problems. First of all, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. That's what we've been asking you to do all through generations is get before God and find out what He wants you to do and go with Him. You ask God for wisdom. Lord, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do it? When am I supposed to do it? You get before God and you ask God for wisdom. Now, somebody has defined knowledge is knowing how to take things apart. Wisdom is knowing how to get it back together. You can have knowledge and say, oh, I know how to take this apart, but it's getting it back together and not having pieces laying all over the floor going, wonder what these are for. Some of you that have put together things for Christmas know what I'm talking about. You know, they're just, they put too many parts in the box. Knowledge. Well, I know how to, I know how to break down things. I know how to calculate But wisdom is knowing how to put it together. God, show me how to put all the pieces of what you're calling me to do together in my life in a way that pleases you. And so first of all, we ask God for wisdom. Secondly, we ask in faith. We ask in faith. By the way, if you're not seeking God's wisdom, Proverbs says that's foolish. Proverbs says there's two kinds of people, the wise and the fool. And if you're not seeking God's wisdom, that's foolish. If you are seeking God's wisdom, you're wise. There's nothing in between. Proverbs doesn't give degrees of foolishness and degrees of wisdom. It just says you're either a wise person or you're a foolish person. And if you're seeking God, you're wise. If you're asking for God's wisdom and not just trying to figure it out on your own, you are wise. And then you ask in faith. The greatest enemy of believing prayer is doubt. Lord, I'm going to ask you for this. I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to believe that you're going to do it. And and Lord, I'm just confident that you're going to take care of this. And and Lord, I give it to you today. I just thank you. You're going to to take care of it. You're going to meet my need. You're going to meet my need. Lord, I just know you are. And and you know what we're doing? We're on our knees and trying to work ourselves up. It's kind of like breaking out of a huddle just before a football game. You know, you're just waiting for somebody to go, break. Okay, we're ready now. You're just waiting for somebody to work you up to this magic moment where you can, for about two seconds, I'm ready. I got faith. That's not faith. He says if you're double-minded, man, you're tossed back and forth. And you know what you do? Sometimes you just worry on your knees. Lord, I'm going to turn this over to you. I just trust you. God, I believe you can handle this. There's this need, and I know that you're in charge, and I know you can handle it. And you get up and say, oh, no, what am I going to do? Who else can I call? You've already made the greatest call you can make, and that's talking to the Lord about it. Do you think he's more powerful and more equipped to deal with the need that you have than anybody else? I do. And so don't get up and worry. Don't be double-minded, trusting God on your knees, panicking on your feet. Don't be double-minded. Be consistent. Be stable. Wiersbe says, immaturity and instability go together. I love that phrase, act like you've been there. (laughs) You know, you you remember what uh, Andy Griffith said to Opie? Act like somebody. 
Yeah, act like somebody. Act like you've been there. You know, don't, when, when something comes and you say you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't go say, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. I'm so worried. I think it's all going to fail. And you just get in this panic mode and you call everybody you know and you just spread panic everywhere. Act like you've been there before. Act like God's still on the throne. Act like God's Word is still true. Act like the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And just don't play act it, live it. Believe God. Take Him at His Word. Take His promises to be true. Don't be double-minded. Don't say one thing when you're at church and then live another way when you're outside. Let your life be consistent with a sincere faith and you ask in faith. A big vision requires unwavering faith. A big prayer requires unwavering faith. When you're asking God to do something outside of your comfort zone and outside of the little box that you've gotten drawn around your life, it takes a big faith because God's going to test you on it. You remember when the children of Israel were about to cross over in the promised land after they'd done about two million funerals in the wilderness? That would have been an exciting church to be a part of. I mean, the paper was nothing but obituaries. That's all it was. Same food every day. Manna bread, manna burgers, manna milkshakes. I mean, everything was manna. It was just nothing. It was boring existence. And so they're getting ready to cross over, and God says, Jordan's at flood stage. And God says, now when the feet of the priest hit the water, the water's apart. The Lord, uh, our deacons and our long-range planning committee met, and we really believe if the water parted before our feet hit the water, we could have more faith. If we could see it before we do it, we could have more faith. Well, you see, doing it is seeing it. Those priests put their feet in the water because God had told them to, because God had said, I'm going to part it, and you're going to cross over on dry land. And by the way, that water backed up 60 miles. Why? So everybody in the back of the line could say, wow, God did just what he said he's going to do. So the guy sitting back in the back saying, I'm glad I'm not up there in the front. Those suckers are going to be drowned by the time we get there. We're just going to be fishing bodies out of the river. Good thing we got some nets. No, so everybody could see that God will honor his word. Finally, Faith is the way I'm to think. By the way, there's no verb for faith in the English language, but faith is an action word. Now think about it. If you put faith, listen to me, if you put faith in your abilities, one day you're going to lose those abilities. Athletically, mentally, physically, you're going to lose those abilities. You're just not going to be able to do what you used to could do. If that's where your faith is, one day your life will fall apart. If you put faith in others, one day they're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to grieve you. They're going to break your heart. And you'll get bitter. And you'll get angry. And you'll become resentful and cynical as a person, if you put your faith in people. By the way, you've let people down, and everybody you know is going to let you down at some point. That's life. 
But if you put your faith there, if it's all about other people, you're not going to fare well. If you put your faith in things, one day they'll be gone. They'll be stolen. They'll be destroyed. They'll be worthless. They'll be replaced. Spurgeon said, never make a Christ out of your faith. And so what are we to put our faith in? Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus. It means looking away from something and unto Him. Looking away from these other things that I would put my faith in and looking unto Jesus. So where am I looking? Not at my faith. I'm looking unto Christ He is the author, the originator, and finisher of our faith. So I look to Him, first of all, for salvation. I look to Him for salvation. If I'm going to be saved, I have to look to Jesus. I don't look to the church to save me. Church doesn't save you. I don't look to baptism to save me. Baptism doesn't save you. I don't look to keeping the rules to save me because it doesn't save me. I look unto Jesus for salvation. Secondly, I look unto Him for sanctification. I look to Him for sanctification. What God started, He continues the process until He's finished. Until we become in the image of Christ. And so I look to Him for sanctification. And then I dwell on Him with a renewed mind. I dwell on Him with a renewed mind. Now here's why that's important. He is not only my example, He is my enabler. Jesus is not just an example that I'm trying to follow. Jesus is the enabler to live the life that he's called me to live. God never expected you to live the life of faith on your own. God expects you to let him live the life of faith through you. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit would confirm to you the Word of God that's been written for you and the Word of God written for you and the Holy Spirit in you will let you go out and live through your life, through this body that He's given you, the life that He intended you to live. It's real simple. We just spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. You were never intended. The only thing God's ever expected out of us, folks, is failure. Because we can't save ourselves. So from beginning to end... We've all failed. What God expects out of us now is to let Him be the victory in us and to live His victory through us. He's overcome everything you have to fear. He's overcome every barrier that would stand in your way of His will for your life. He has provided everything you need to live the life that He's called you to live. But now here's what happens. Stephen, come up here. People have two views of life. I just want you to just stare down like that. Just stare, just stare down. There are a lot of people, their whole view of life is they're just looking down. They just, they're just thinking every little speck is a problem. And there are other people that are always looking out and they see the possibilities. This person always sees the problems. Oh, problems everywhere. They're just problems. I've made a list. You want me to read it to you? And the other person sees the possibilities. Does the person that sees the possibilities think there are no problems? Absolutely not. It's just the problems aren't big enough that they overcome the possibilities. And so every one of us in this room today either views life as nothing but problems or we view it as possibilities. I'm not talking about positive thinking here. I'm talking about believing God and taking Him at His word. He said, I'll supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. 
Now, did he mean that? The person with possibility says, I believe that God meant what he said when he said that. This person right here always looking at the problem said, that's for everybody but me. Billions of people in the world, but it doesn't apply to me. It just doesn't apply to me. It's not going to work for me because there's too many problems. I know the problems. You just can't believe the problems, and they'll tell you. And when you see them coming, you pray for the rapture because you know, oh, you're going to hear about some problems. How you doing? Don't ask. They're just going to tell you about their problems. And you say, well, you know what? God's got a victory out there for you if you just believe. I could never believe him for that. And so they just spend their whole life walking down, looking at the ground in front of them, and they never see the horizon of what God has for them. Thanks, Stephen. Ken Jenkins and I were together in the fall of 2004, and we were standing on a large mountain. We could see about 60 miles in this direction and about 60 miles in that direction. We could see the Greenbrier Ridge and Mount Lacan in front of us, and, and we were standing on the edge. And uh, I, I said, you know, Ken, and I, I said, I, I don't like heights. I mean, yeah, I've been up on this catwalk one time. I said, I don't, I don't like heights. I don't, I don't like to get on ladders. I just don't, I don't like it. And, and I'll tell you why. When I was nine years old, I climbed the tree that was up by the side of our house where I grew up, and I got up on the roof. And then I was scared to get back on the tree that I climbed up, and I jumped off the roof of the, roof of the house. I was not the brightest bulb in the package. I just want you to know that. And ever since then, I thought, I'm never going to get up somewhere where i got to look down 20-plus feet and go, I guess I'm going to have to jump. There's nobody home. My mother, my mother was at work. My dad was at work. There's no neighbors at home. I thought, if I break my leg, I'm going to lay here and die. <laughs> and, I, and Ken said, you know, I don't really like heights either. I said, man, how do you get all these pictures? He said, if I'm standing on solid ground, I feel safe. As long as I've got a good ledge, I feel secure. And when he said that, I thought about, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, there's a great series of pictures that Ken used, and I'm going to ask him to put up the first one. These are two wolves in the far north. Those wolves know that there is a deer on the other side of this river. The river is frozen through, and uh, at this particular point in the river, the, the water has broken through the ice, and that water that you see in the background is rushing by at about 35 miles an hour. Those two wolves are scanning the horizon. They're scanning what's going on. They're looking at where they are. I want you to see the second picture. The second picture, one is jumping. The other is looking down saying, Man, that water's cold. <laughs> that could hurt. But this first wolf, he's decided he's moving. Now what they had done is they backed up, and that one came and he stopped. This one started and he kept going, and he took the jump. Third picture. That's him midair. Ken's about 12 feet from him. That's midair. He committed. The other one is out of the frame. He's still standing there looking down. He's looking at the river. He's forgotten about the deer and the fact that they're hungry and that they need to eat. And he's looking down at the water that's rushing in front of him. But this wolf committed. 
And after he committed, he lands. Fourth one. And he never broke stride until he accomplished his goal. Every one of us in this room are either the wolf standing on the side looking at the dangers or we're this one. We've made the commitment, we're jumping, and it, Ken said in being there, that wolf never landed and turned around and said, are, are you coming? <laughs> he forgot everything and everyone that was behind him, and he just pressed toward the mark. Now, folks, we will live and die standing on the edge of great promises and victories or going to the other side and seeing the reality. Everyone in this room is one of two wolves. You're the one that's probably still standing there, looking at the danger, thinking it's too wide, it's too much. I'll stay over here and maybe something will come to me and I won't have to work. I won't have to exert myself. And then there's the one that says, this is worth it. And when we get to generations next Sunday, when we make our commitments as a church next Sunday, we're either going to stand on the side and say, I'm not sure, or we're going to take the jump and say, I'm ready. I'm going. I can see what God's going to do. I can see the way God's going to do it. And I'm ready to be used of God to do it. And we're going to jump across. And when they come behind us years from now, and when the picture of this church is painted in this year, 2005, and they look at the picture of this church in 2025 and in 2050, will they see a picture of us standing and looking down and saying, that's an awful lot, that's too much, I don't know if I can do that, or will they look at us and say, Man, look at that church. They believed God, and once they crossed over, they never broke stride. And look at what they have left for us. They hit the ground running, and they never broke stride. That's our legacy. I hope that 50 years from now, when they look back on us, that there's nobody standing on this side going, I don't see how. But all of us together say, let's go. Let's do it.